Welcome to the 2019 Year in Review. The good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. Brought to you by, as always, your wonderful, your exciting, your interesting, your committed hosts, Sarah and Julia. They're going to take you through the year. It's going to be great. You're going to hear everything you want to hear, nothing you don't. The impulse, it's where you want to be. Tune in. Tune in. Enjoy. Welcome back. We are so excited to announce we've completed yet another year at Ian Pulse. Yay! <laughs> I cannot even believe that it's 2020. Sarah, it sounds like something out of a science fiction story from my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, this last year, we published 25 episodes for a total of 50 episodes. That is awesome. And we did our first live podcast at Western Regional SAM. Actually, it was like two podcasts, right? Yeah, that was super fun, actually. And we are now being listened to in 109 countries, which kind of blows my mind. <laughs> That's awesome. Now we need to work on our language development. Maybe right. 109 link. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and this year we have some really exciting things coming up. We are kicking off our advisory panel. This is a panel of diverse physicians and some non-physicians to keep EM Pulse fresh, to keep it relevant. And most of all, this is our version of peer review. We have also partnered with Cal ASEP to create a series that goes in-depth on medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder, or MAT. That will be published within probably the next month. Yeah, I'm super excited about that. And I have also partnered up with the EIIC, or the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center. Geez, that's a mouthful. <laughs> and we're going to be dropping some micro-podcasts, teeny-tiny little podcasts on peed seizures. So we'll keep you guys posted on that as well. So for today, we're going to go over a few of our favorite moments from this past year. Sarah, my number one favorite thing, maybe a little bit of a cop-out because it's not really a moment in time, but more of a theme. I love that we are using narratives. We're using storytelling to understand science. And that's my favorite thing about EM Pulse. It's been such a big honor to be the co-host of a podcast that's using patients and providers' stories. And they're trusting us with our stories. And that's huge to me. We're all vulnerable when we share our stories. It's scary to put yourself out there. So I am loving that aspect of it. That's up and coming with inside of all areas of education. And I'm excited that we're on the forefront of that. One of my favorite stories that we have explored was Austin Johnson's story. Austin was a professor here at UC Davis. He subsequently moved on. I just want to share a little piece of that story with you right now. PD is requesting medical personnel in Theater 9. They have a child down and cannot evacuate. And PD is advising there are 10 people down outside of Denver behind the theater, Theater 9. I believe that they have another party inside Theater 9 that they can't evacuate, which is... In reality, it's like crystal clear in my mind. For a lot of people, it's probably just another mass shooting, right? We see them weekly now. I feel like they're always in the news. But the Aurora shooting happened... So we saw our first victim about 25 minutes after the shooting started. And then literally five minutes later, we had 18 patients who showed up in 15 minutes. And every single one of them would have been like a major trauma resuscitation. Almost every single one, not every single one. And they just showed up. And most Wow, it is so stressful to listen to that. 
I know. I think my adrenaline went up just hearing that medic call there. And I really liked this moment, the story that Austin shared with us, because he emphasized to me the importance in a mass casualty of being cross-trained. And it's really pushed me to ask more questions as the nurses are setting up things, getting ready for a trauma so that I can be ready for any role in a mass casualty. Go listen to the story because he has some really powerful moments and powerful lessons. Yeah, he also talked about how that really impacted him long-term, how he cared that weight with him. And I think a lot of us are carrying weights from various different traumas that we've gone through as well. So I appreciated him sharing that and how he's dealt with that a little bit. You know, obviously that's kind of an extreme version, Sarah, but we all have gun violence stories, right? When we did our episode, This Is My Lane, it was easy to get providers to share their stories of gun violence because we all have them. And that brings me to another moment that I really appreciated, another story that I really appreciated, and that was our colleague Mary Bing's story. She shared how she was impacted by a child victim of gun violence. Probably hard to recall all of them. There's one that happened within the past few months. We actually acquired the patient as a transfer from another hospital. They stabilized her. She's a three-year-old that got shot by drive-by shooting. She wasn't outside. She wasn't in a car. She was inside her house. Um, even though I didn't directly take care of her, I was only the doc that, except that saw her with trauma surgery at transfer. It's still something that's really, really hard to take. And I can't imagine the doctors that had to take care of her at the other end. Um, Three-year-olds, three years old. This year, we spoke about gun violence in several episodes, and it was a recurring theme for us because we believe this is so important for physicians and that we can make a change. Garen Wintemute is a physician at UC Davis and a gun violence researcher. He describes gun violence as a public health issue that we can help resolve. Um, I saw, I, I think, one of the very first cases of AIDS as an ER doc in the early 80s. And we knew we were up against something really big. And there was a time when that diagnosis was a death sentence. But we didn't tolerate that. We put hundreds and then thousands of people on the case and AIDS is now a manageable chronic condition, we have simply chosen over and over again, consciously and deliberately, not to take that approach with firearm violence. Garen mentions that mass shootings are well-publicized, but the violence that Mary Bing described and suicide are actually more common. Far and away, 98 to 99% of the problem is the kind of violence that doesn't make the news or doesn't make the news as much. And I think that's in large part because we've gotten used to it, or we we, we did. We came to understand it as part of America, as if it had to be that way, and it does not have mm. to be that way. So it doesn't make the news. A lot of people are have been concerned that we'll come to understand public mass shootings as part of America. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the reverse is going to happen, that outrage over those events is going to grow to outrage over firearm violence and violence generally, that we're finally going to understand it doesn't have to be this way. There are other countries like ours where it isn't this way. It's not mm. hypothetical. The case has been proven that it doesn't have to be this way. I 
love that Garen is an eternal optimist and he believes that it doesn't have to be this way. That's amazingly big thinking. Yeah, and you can hear more about how we can be a part of the solution in the full episode, hashtag this is my lane. I also really appreciated Dr. Megan Ranney's take about using social media for advocacy. I think there is a dopamine rush with social media, but it can't stop there. It has to be backed up by actually doing the work. And so for folks that are more junior, finding ways that they can do that work and train themselves to be effective, not just in the public sphere, but also in the hard, sometimes slogging or, or boring, um, but really essential work in their own EDs and hospitals and communities is really essential. Um, for folks that are out in practice, again, I think the community is important um, and, and finding ways that they can help affect change in their own setting as, as well as online, again, is critical. Man, she is such a powerhouse. I thought that our episode, With Great Power Comes Great Responsibility, was incredibly inspiring. Sarah, what was another favorite moment for you? Well, one of the most eye-opening episodes for me was The ER is My Doctor, where we interviewed Dr. Donna Beagle about how poverty affects our patients. And Donna's message is so powerful because her expertise is rooted in her own experience. So here's a snippet of her story. I didn't know that people could have their teeth past 30. I thought your teeth go in a cup at 30. I did not know that people could live past 60 because everybody I knew, they died very young. I dropped out of school at 15 and I got married. I married a guy from deep generational migrant labor poverty, just like my family. We would pick fruit in the morning and make enough money to get potato chip sandwiches and then go back and do it in the evening, get enough for a little bit of dinner and gas to get back to the fields the next day. She also shared some really sobering statistics with us. Currently, we count 43 million people who live in the crisis of poverty. And I say we count them because most we don't count. We have a faulty federal poverty guideline. It's based on an economic formula from the 1960s cost of living. And we use that today to determine what does a family need. Uh, well, the problem with that is things have changed a bit since the 60s. So three big things, childcare, healthcare, and transportation are not included in the economic formula that we use today to calculate what do people need. So the federal poverty guideline is $25,100 for a family of four. Donna talks about how people living in poverty die significantly younger and have infant mortality rates similar to developing nations. This is something that we as physicians have to care about. And in the full episode, she also shares some great ways that we can connect with and care for our patients who are struggling with poverty. I definitely learned a lot. Donna was really amazing. I love a good underdog story. And man, did she come out on top. It was a great moment. Yeah, really inspiring. And speaking of learning, education was another big theme for us this year. So we talked about leveraging technology for lifelong learning and using technology for teaching as well. And one episode that really inspired me was Future Casting Med Ed. <laughs> Sarah, you are such an education nerd, I swear. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> So Dr. Mike Jazondi is the vice chair of education in the Stanford Department of Emergency Medicine, and he thinks really big, like into the future big. He gave a great talk at the Western Regional SAEM conference envisioning what medical education will look like for an EM resident 30 years from now. Here's just a snippet of the changes that he foresees. Medicine will become more complex. Our ability to access data 
um, will cause studies to be far more transparent where you're going to know not only the analysis and the methodology, but the actual raw data points where you can reinterpret it. So, so those are important considerations, right? We're going to have to teach our student to be working in teams that address complex healthcare needs. We're going to teach our student how to analyze journals in ways we weren't taught how to analyze journals, right? And, and to be able to address the massive amount of information coming at her and saying, all right, well, I've got to curate the information that I need to know for my individual patient at this very moment. So that skill of curation, I believe, is is its own um, new form of knowledge transition. It's its own new form of scholarship, honestly. His whole interview really spoke to me because I think that medical education does need to evolve. And he talks about partnering with education methodologists and using learning analytics, as well as providing our faculty with advanced training on how to be educators. And taking to that next big picture level, he also believes improving med ed will ultimately lead to reduced complications, increased patient satisfaction, faster throughput, and reduced physician burnout. Those are things that we all care about, right, Sarah? Yeah, absolutely. I love people that are big thinkers and see beyond the basics. Dr. Nate Cooperman is a regular on our podcast and is also another one of those big thinkers. Nate thinks beyond a simple study and asks, what are the Star Trek level needs for the future? Like, can I take a drop of blood from a patient and tell them exactly what disease they have and then take it to that next level? Can I use precision medicine to tailor the medicine, the treatment to that disease process? Big ideas like that are part of why I love medicine, and more specifically academic medicine, because we can be on the forefront of this. That's why Hot Off the Press Infant Fever Rule is one of my favorite episodes of 2019. Dr. Cooperman and P. Karn developed a simple guideline for us to decrease unnecessary testing in febrile neonates. Nate called this the Goldilocks principle. And this is important not just for us, but for our patients. Yeah, and one of my favorite moments was hearing why this is so important for our patients, like you're saying, Sarah, why we are studying this, why we need to look into the future and be more precise. To be honest, I was just terrified because, you know, little ones with a fever, things can change quickly into meningitis, and I was just terrified of losing another, another baby. When they went to do the spinal puncture on him, I had to leave the room because it was just too much for me. I have had two prior kids that they were sickly and I were able I was able to stay, but because of the extensiveness of the pain that being punctured in your lumbar doesn't feel good. So I left and um, by the time I finally was like, you know, my mother's guilt kind of set in and I was like, I have to go back because I could hear him all the way down on the other side of the building. And when I went and they finally decided that they would just wait and let um, UC Davis try because they had to at least attempt a lumbar puncture. It was just really heartbreaking to see him go through that because, you know, you see what's left is like the gauze, the needles, the blood that is from your child and it's just really painful to go through it but I had to remind myself it's for his own benefit they're trying to help him and so with every everything that was going on your new newborn mom at least for me and I was exhausted but I don't know there's just chaos pure chaos to me that's all I remember is them trying to do everything for him 
So PCAR learned that we still need to do everything in those that are less than 28 days of age for right now. But in the 28 to 60 day age range, we can do three things. Get a urine, check an ANC, and check a procalcitonin. Using this strategy, we can determine who needs a TAP, antibiotics, and admission. And the way they set up that information in their study, we can then risk stratify patients and even engage parents in shared decision making. So bottom line, if you have an infant 28 to 60 days old with a normal UA, an ANC less than 4,000, and a procalcitonin less than 0.5, you do not have to do the full court press, right? Yep. And I love it. It's one of my favorite moments from 2019 because it changed the way that I can help infants like we heard in this story. All right, Sarah, it takes me to my final favorite moment, and that was Dr. Matt Weschler's story. Let's just hear a snippet from it. I woke up floating in the ocean, face down, and I couldn't move. I knew it was bad, and without a doubt, I was going to die. With the last remaining air in my lungs, I screamed into the ocean. On November 15th, 2017, I was found by a stranger face down and unconscious in the water off Ocean Beach on the edge of San Francisco. He dragged me to the shore my body was gray, I wasn't breathing, and I had no pulse. We probably have been dead for about 10 minutes. I can just feel that moment the way he describes it. Yeah, Matt was an emergency medicine physician who was saved by bystanders and eventually the local trauma center, but the accident left him paralyzed. After a long recovery and some state-of-the-art care, he made it home. But sadly, as you know, Sarah, that was not the end of the story because he was caught up in a fight between himself, his insurance company, and the hospital system. He had massive bills that were a surprise to him. Yep. Surprise billing is the idea that you get an unanticipated bill, a surprise bill. And a subset or daughter, if you will, of surprise bills are balance billing. And that's when a patient's health insurance company pays an out-of-network physician or other health care provider less than the amount that they charge for that care. Because the physician and the health plan have not agreed upon payment through a contract, that physician or the hospital or whoever bills the patient for the remainder of the costs. Ugh, yes, I know. And this is such a huge issue for our country, our friends, our patients, and even as Matt pointed out, for ourselves. Yeah, Matt is a good example that balanced billing can affect anybody. And it really represents the complexity of the healthcare system. Matt reminded us how painful this actually can be. Just the amount of anxiety and vulnerability that I experienced over the last several months. I mean, emotionally, it was more difficult to deal with the payment of my care than my injury. Paying for my medical treatment was more painful than recovering from paralysis. There really is no simple solution. Nope, but I do think we can advocate. We can be bigger thinkers, just like Dr. Jasandi and Dr. Cooperman. 
We can help improve our healthcare system. We can stop pointing fingers at each other with the patient in the middle. We should be more transparent and decrease billing complexity. We can talk to our local societies. We can commit to engaging in good faith efforts to make contracts and accept reasonable out-of-network reimbursement. We can really promote efforts to preserve the EM safety net. And I loved this episode because while it's not easy, it's not simple, it's real and dirty and applies to all of us, whether we like it or not. Okay, so I want to finish this off with yet another recurring theme, global health. Yeah, that was definitely a big theme. We heard stories from all over the world, including stories from our colleagues practicing medicine in extreme conditions. Yeah, these docs are seriously hardcore. In EM Far Forward, Dr. Rod Fontenette spoke to us about his experiences as an emergency physician in the military. And I am truly so humbled by his ability to provide amazing care in such a low-resource, high-pressure environment. When I deploy, I deploy with my paralytics. I deploy with all my area medications. I have to learn how to do damage control resuscitation far forward, sometimes with very limited resources. I have to learn how to transfuse my patients. Uh, when I was deployed in Turkey in 2015, I had to set up the walking blood bank for, for the whole five, basically, right? I've never set up a walking blood bank. That's, uh, I think I skipped that day in, in residency, right? So uh, so those are the things that as a military EM doc that you kind of have to pick up uh, in addition to uh, your emergency medicine residency. I cannot even imagine setting up a blood bank, Sarah. I know, it's insane. And if you think that's crazy, well, you can't get much more extreme than the South Pole. So we spoke with Dr. John Rose in our heartbeat Operation Deep Freeze. John was the attending physician at Amundsen Station in Antarctica, and I was so fascinated by his account of his time there. The South Pole, um, you know, as I said, is, is a, it's on 10,000 feet of ice, um, and it's, there's never been carbon there. It's for 1,000 miles. Uh, South Pole looks more like Europa or Mars than it does Earth. It's, you know, 4% humidity, uh, and as I described, very, very cold. So... Um, and the station there is uh, considered a space station by NASA because we share our satellites with the International Space Station. Um, but it, it is like being in space. You were isolated that way. We didn't have fruits or vegetables for almost three months. So I think we need to talk with an astronaut next. <laughs> John was the only physician at that station, so he had to be incredibly self-reliant. You know, I had a full treatment room with resuscitation room. I had uh, five ventilators total that I could use. I had an x-ray machine. I had to learn how to shoot my own x-rays. I had to warm it up and learn how to shoot x-rays, develop my films, and upload them to University of Texas. I had an ultrasound machine. It was very nice. I could shoot ultrasounds, which we did a lot of ultrasounds for everything because it's easy to use, and I could upload those. I had to do my own EKGs, put my own IVs in, draw my own bloods. Uh, I had to run my own labs. We had iStat and Piccolo machines, so I'd have to do all those. We had a pharmacy. I would have to dispense my own uh, medications out of there. We had a two-bed inpatient unit, so if we had someone who was sick like we did a couple times, so we had to fly out, but the planes aren't coming for a couple days. We, I had to stay as the nurse and stay in the unit with them. Um, and so we pretty much had to do everything on station ourselves. 
Wow, I have so much respect for all of our colleagues providing care around the world in these remote and extreme environments. Yeah, I love hearing those stories. It really puts my own home in perspective. And it's been really fun going over these shared favorite moments. We seem to have a lot of themes in common, Sarah. All of these episodes have the theme of looking at the big picture in emergency medicine and how we can radically improve care for our patients and be better physician educators, both locally and around the world. I am really looking forward to our next year of EMPulse. We have a lot of great topics coming up like seizure management and a global health mini-series and women in emergency medicine and much more. Yeah, it's going to be a great year. Follow along with us on social media at EMPulse Podcast and pass the word along to your friends and colleagues. We would love to hear what your favorite episode is from our 2019 season and if you have ideas for other topics. So some folks have already submitted some great ideas and we're incorporating them like a future episode on physician-nurse communication. So stay tuned. You can also register now for the 43rd annual UC Davis Emergency Medicine Winter Conference. It's going on February 24 to 29 at the Ritz-Carlton in Lake Tahoe. See the show notes for more information. Julie and I will both be teaching there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We'd like to thank the Department of Emergency Medicine at UC Davis for your expertise and support. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for another great year. And thank you to all of you, our listeners. We love learning with you. See you all next time. 